It started with a simple knock at the door. The men identified themselves as intelligence officers with the Brazilian Navy, and they were none too happy. You know too much about things you weren't entitled to know, one of the men said. The other added, we don't like that. The man who knew too much was Dr. Alavo Fontes. Fontes was a brilliant young medical doctor who practiced internal medicine in Rio de Janeiro. He became vice president of the Brazilian Society of Gastroenterology and Nutrition before dying of cancer in 1968. His interest in the UFO phenomenon began in 1954, after a series of UFO sightings over Brazil. He joined the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization shortly after, as the sole Brazilian representative of the UFO group. He gained notoriety in 1957 after testing debris from an alleged UFO crash. In September, columnist Ibrahim Swed reported in the Rio newspaper, O Globo, that a fragment of a UFO had been sent to him by an admirer. The letter enclosed stated that the hunk of metal had been recovered near the town of Ubatuba in Sao Paulo, while the sender was night fishing. The UFO approached the beach, headed for the surface of the water. Incredibly, the craft changed course on a dime and headed straight up before exploding in midair. Most of the debris sank under the surface of the water, but a few pieces fell on the beach. Fontes read the article and reached out to Swed, offering to test the metal on his own dime. Swed agreed, and the debris was sent to the National Department of Mineral Production through Brazil's Agricultural Ministry. A portion of the metal tested was composed of pure magnesium, while other fragments had slightly stranger compositions. They were not, however, out of this world in any way. Fontes' investigation of the case brought him notoriety as a UFO researcher and the unwanted attention of Brazil's Navy. Instead of asking Alava Fontes about the medal, the two intelligence officers began rattling off information about UFOs that crashed and had been recovered. There were six of them. Three had gone down in the United States, while one each was recovered from the Sahara Desert, Scandinavia, and the UK. In fact, the UFO that had crashed in the United Kingdom was in near-perfect condition. The officer stated that world governments knew about the extraterrestrial presence on Earth, and were working hard to keep it from the public. The recovered disks ranged in size from 30 to 100 feet in diameter. All of them were piloted by short, humanoid entities, but to date, none had survived. They were all powered by atomic parts and electromagnetic effects, and every government that got their hands on this technology was in a desperate race to back-engineer it. Most importantly, these alien beings were hostile and not welcome on Earth, and most government officials had no clue about the ET presence on Earth, not even the 21st president of Brazil, Juscelino Kubitschek. And yet, here they were telling Alavo Fontes about it who then shared these startling revelations with APRO founders Coral and Jim Lorenzen. Fontes wasn't really buying, but the visit was curious for other reasons. Their arrival coincided with another UFO case that Fontes was working on, involving a 23-year-old farmer who was forcefully taken on board a UFO and mated with a female alien.
My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is Episode 5 of the Our Strange Skies Podcast. The remote hinterlands of southern Brazil is where you could find the experiencer, known only as AVB, in 1961. He lived five kilometers from the nearest town, in the municipality of São Francisco de Sales, in the state of Minas Gerais. There were no roads that led to the experiencer, only five kilometers of rough back country, accessible only by horse. It took Mr. Bueller and Dr. Mario Prudente Aquino 36 hours by bus and horse to find the home of Antonio V.S. Boas. The 27-year-old son of a farmer was cordial, but reticent to reveal every detail of his experience. Antonio understood the sacrifice it took to find him, and didn't want to leave his uninvited guests with nothing to show for it. Upon closer examination, we can presume Antonio was still deeply affected by the event years later. He kept some of the more embarrassing details from the two men, but revealed that, in December of 1957, he had been taken on board a UFO, subjected to a short medical examination, and sent on his way. What the men didn't know was that Antonio Villas-Boas had told his story to two other people. On February 22, 1958, Antonio gave a written affidavit to Dr. Olavo Fontes, and Brazilian journalist João Martins. Martins frequently contributed UFO articles to O Cruzeiro, a long-defunct magazine. It was through his reporting that Antonio Villas-Boas learned of the journalist and reached out to him via letter in November 1957. Martins, who had befriended Olavo Fontes, contacted the doctor in January of 1958 and the two agreed to put up the money to bring Antonio to Rio de Janeiro, where he would undergo a medical examination and give a 13-page affidavit detailing his incredible experience. Antonio Villas-Boas was the second youngest child of his Caboclo family. He had three sisters and a brother whom he shared a room with. The farm itself had many plantations and fields, and a petrol tractor, which was a rare item for most farms to possess at the time. They were prominent within their small agricultural municipality, producing enough to regularly pay for additional staff on the farm. Antonio worked the night shift due to the intense heat of the day and took a correspondence course when time allowed. The night of October 5th, 1957 was hot and stuffy. 
There was a party on the Villasboas homestead that evening, and Antonio had the night off. He went to bed around 11 p.m. The room he shared with his brother, Jao, was unbearably hot that night. He drew open the shutters to let in fresh air, and in the middle of their yard, near the farmhouse, a bright light illuminated the ground. Antonio could not see where the light was coming from. He called over to Jao to come look, but the tired brother ignored him. Antonio continued to watch the light until it moved toward the house and his bedroom window. He threw the shutters closed and stepped back, falling on his bed, where the two brothers watched as light flooded in through the slats of the shutters. The light remained there, in front of their window, for a few moments longer before it disappeared, as if the light had been doused for the night. The brothers did their best to put the light out of their mind, and it wasn't long before the exhaustion of a long day's work put their minds at ease. A different light appeared above the Villasboas farm nine days later, as Antonio and Jao were plowing one of the northern fields. Antonio was driving the petrol tractor, and his brother was walking beside him, when the bright light appeared in the sky over the northern end of the field. It was almost too bright to look at, but he compared its size to that of a cartwheel, nearly 100 meters or about 328 feet tall. The intense red light made it difficult to discern the actual object behind it, but Antonio was mesmerized by the intense rays that seemed to shoot from its center. He tried to convince his brother to examine the light, but he refused out of fear. Antonio climbed down from the tractor and ran to the north. In a quick burst of speed, the light darted away to the south, and a game of cat and mouse ensued. He chased the object as it moved back and forth, up and down the field, until he grew tired and returned to his tractor to continue the night's work. He did his best to keep an eye on the light, looking up when the work allowed. In one nimble moment, the light was gone, but like the death of a star, its light will remain for quite some time. One night later, on October 15th, Antonio was alone in the field. At 1 a.m., a star as bright as Polaris appeared among the canopy of stars. It was red, like the one the night before, but this time it descended rapidly toward him. What had once been a red light in the night sky was now a brightly lit egg. It settled just 50 meters or 164 feet above the tractor, bathing the machine and the ground around it in a red glimmer. I could see the shape of the machine clearly which was like a large elongated egg with three metal spurs in front, one in the middle and one on each side. They were three metal shafts thick at the bases and pointed at the tips. I could not distinguish their color for they were enveloped by a powerful reddish phosphorescence or fluorescent light like that of a luminous sign of the same shade as the front headlight. It was surrounded by little purplish lights and with an enormous red headlight in the front from which all the light had been coming that I had seen when it was higher up in the sky, and that had prevented me from making out any other details. On the upper part of the machine, there was something which was revolving at great speed, and also giving off a powerful fluorescent reddish light. At the moment when the machine reduced speed to land, this light changed to a greenish color, which corresponded, such was my impression, 
to a diminution in the speed of rotation of that revolving part, which at this point seemed to be taking on the shape of a round dish or a flattened cupola. A frightened Antonio Villas-Boas weighed his options. He knew the tractor couldn't outrun the craft, and the earth below his feet was soft this spring, increasing the likelihood of breaking a leg while trudging through the mud. The craft hovered above the tractor for a number of minutes before it drifted slowly toward the ground, mere meters away from the frightened farmer. Antonio frantically put the tractor in gear, pushing it as hard as it would go. It moved just 20 feet before the engine failed. He turned to look at the resting craft, and a door that had opened up on the bottom of it. He had to chance it on foot. He jumped down from the tractor, in a desperate race to reach the safety of the farmhouse. He was a few meters further toward home when a pair of hands gripped his left arm and tried to pull him backwards. The hands belonged to a short figure, barely the height of Antonio's shoulders. He pushed the figure to the ground before three taller ones tackled him. Antonio struggled as much as he could to break free, but the collective was too strong. He was hoisted up a ladder, kicking and screaming. His cries went unanswered by his family, sleeping comfortably in their beds. Every time he grasped one of the rungs, the humanoids would pull his fingers away, until there was no ladder left to grasp. In the next moment, Antonio found himself in a small square room. The doorway had disappeared, replaced with a smooth, seamless wall, made of a metal that reflected light emitted from square lamps that were evenly spaced on the walls. He was ushered into an ovular room, furnished only with a table and a few sparse backless chairs. A large metallic pillar in the center of the room offered some kind of structural support. It was thick at the top and bottom, and tapered in the middle. It was in this room that Antonio got his first look at his abductors. I must declare that up to that moment, I hadn't the slightest idea as to how those weird men looked, nor what their features were like. All five of them were a very tight-fitting siren suit, made of soft, thick, unevenly striped gray material. This garment reached right up to their necks where it was joined to a kind of helmet made of a gray material, I don't know what it was, that looked stiffer and was strengthened back and front by thin metal plates, one of which was three-cornered at nose level. Their helmets hid everything except their eyes, which were protected by two round glasses, like the lenses in ordinary glasses. Through them, the men looked at me and their eyes seemed to be much smaller than ours, though I believe that may have been the effect of the lenses. All of them had light-colored eyes that looked blue to me, but this I cannot vouch for. Above their eyes, those helmets looked so tall that they corresponded to the double of what the size of a normal head should be. Probably there was something else hidden under those helmets, placed on top of their heads but nothing could be seen from the outside. Right on top, from the middle of their heads, there sprouted three round silverly metal tubes, 
I can't tell whether they were made of metal or of rubber, which were a little narrower than a common garden hose. The tubes, which were placed one in the middle and one on each side of their heads, were smooth and bent backward and downward toward the back. There they fitted into their clothes. How? I cannot say. But one went down the center, where the backbone is, and the other two, one on each side, fitted under the shoulders at about four inches from the armpits, nearly at the sides where the back begins. Antonio was kept waiting in this room, while the masked figures talked amongst themselves, in a language he didn't recognize. I say talk as a manner of speech, for what they said had no resemblance whatsoever to human speech. They talked in growls, like dogs do, in a way. This comparison is not quite fitting, but it's the only one I can think of in an attempt to describe those sounds. So different were they from anything I'd ever heard before. The grunts were emitted slowly. They were neither high-pitched nor too low. Some were longer, others shorter, sometimes containing several different sounds at the same time, at other times ending in a tremor. But they sounded to me only like animal growls, and there was nothing that could be taken for the sound of a syllable or for a word in a foreign language. Nothing whatsoever. To me, it all sounded the same, so now I cannot remember a word of it. The conversation ended abruptly. Antonio barely noticed the silence that crept in when two of the masked figures grabbed hold of his clothes and started to remove them. Again, he resisted as much as possible. The masked figures stopped for a moment and looked at the young farmer. He noted their gentle nature and felt like they were being as polite as possible. He allowed them to continue their task. Once his clothes were removed, another figure approached carrying a sponge. A thick, odorless substance was applied to Antonio's body that made him shiver in the cold atmosphere of the ship. A pair of beings took hold of his arms and led him to a strange door. The figure on the left placed a hand on the middle of the door, and it opened inward. Above the entryway, an indecipherable red inscription glowed brightly, like the neon of a watering hole. There were not words in any conventional sense, but consisted of a few lines and dots resembling a signature. This room was smaller yet, square in shape, and when he turned toward the door, it was gone, just a seamless wall in this lonely room. A pair of beings returned a short time later, carrying a strange device. On one end, a tube led into a glass, similar to a cupping glass, and when it was applied to one side of Antonio's chin, created a sucking sensation. Antonio looked down and watched as the glass filled with red liquid. Once it was full, a second tube was applied to the other side of his chin, and the glass was filled once more. Scar tissue formed in those places on his chin and took a number of months to heal completely. The masked figures left the room once again. This room, like the previous one, was sparse. It was furnished only with an unconventional couch in the center of the room. Its center cushion was slightly elevated, but still appeared comfortable. Antonio sat down, and as he did, perceived a suffocating odor. 
A wave of nausea sent him running to a corner of the room, where he vomited a few times. Looking up from a kneeling position, he was eye-level with a series of metal tubes coming out of the walls. Separated by inches ran the length of each wall, and it was from these tubes the odor was emanating. The nausea soon faded, like a forgotten memory, and so did all semblance of time within the room. It's unclear how long Antonio waited, but it felt like forever to him. He returned to the couch, losing all sense of place in this room without a door, when one opened behind him. Alright, if you know this case, it's most likely because of what's about to come here. No pun intended, swear. It stands out because, well, let's face it, when the alien boom-boom happens, the story becomes much, much more interesting. Antonio turned to his right. A nude woman stood just inside the room, while two helmeted figures stood behind her just outside. The door closed, and the woman was alone with Antonio. She strode towards him slowly, with purpose in every step. He was struck by her, and noted how her body, quote, was much more beautiful than that of any woman I have ever known before. She was short in stature. The top of her head reached Antonio's shoulders. Her pale frame was thin, and she had hair that came halfway down her neck. It was nearly white, as though it were bleached, and smooth to the touch in his hands. The middle part accentuated how sparse her hair really was. Strangely, her pubic and armpit hair were bright red, as bright as blood. Her eyes were large, blue, and slanted, met by very high cheekbones, giving her face a wide appearance. Her cheeks looked as if a rigid bone was pushing up just underneath the skin, but was soft to the touch, like her hair. Below the cheeks, her face narrowed into a jagged, angular point. Her lips were thin and not very pronounced. Her breasts were high and well separated, and led to a small stomach. She had wide hips and large thighs. Her hands were long and narrow, and met arms that were freckled, and her legs were thin and her feet were small. The woman wasted little time making her intentions known. She walked around the couch in front of Antonio, and started to rub her head across his face. She went back and forth, side to side her alien affection strange but enjoyable. In his affidavit, he stated that this act excited him. She bid him gently on the chin, and the two did the alien boom-boom. Twice. Antonio firmly believed the substance that was applied to his body played a role in his excited state, like a form of liquid Viagra. When he tried to embrace the woman for a third time, she lost interest and rejected him. One of the larger figures appeared in the doorway with Antonio's clothes. He gestured to the young farmer to put them back on. The woman turned to Antonio before leaving the room. She pointed to her belly, to him, and then to the sky. Some researchers have seen this as a sign that she was now pregnant, but Antonio believed that it meant that he would be seeing her again.
Once clothed, Antonio was ushered into the last room with the table and chairs. He was left to his own devices to observe every detail in the room. He took in all his eyes would allow, as a small group of his abductors spoke amongst themselves, propped up against the table like a group of friends drinking in a bar. Antonio looked over to the men, and amongst them, on the table, sat a square box with a glass lid on top. It had a dial that reminded him of an alarm clock, with black marks at 3, 6, and 9 o'clock. At 12 o'clock, there were four black marks in close succession. One of the masked figures would look down at the face of the box periodically, like a person checking their watch. He saw this as an opportunity to bring back proof of his experience. And as the men continued to talk amongst themselves, Antonio subtly moved closer to the mysterious box. He did his best to be inconspicuous, and at the opportune moment, snatched it off the table. It felt heavy in his hands for the few brief moments he held it. The masked figures took it from him quickly and tackled Antonio Villas-Boas in an aggressive manner before returning to their conversation as if nothing had ever happened. He took a seat against a wall away from the men, too scared to do anything else. The men continued their conversation as if he wasn't there for many minutes. Then, one of the masked figures rose up and gestured Antonio to follow. The hooded figure led him to the rear of the ship, to the hatch door he had been forced through, and next to it was a platform that wound around the entire ship. Antonio was shown a pair of square projections on both sides of the hull. He came to believe that these devices aided the craft in ascending and descending. Toward the front, three metal projections of the same shape and size jutted out from the center. They were thick at the base and tapered toward each end. Antonio's tour guide led him back toward the rear of the ship and pointed to the top of the craft and to a spinning cupola. It was lit by an intense green light and rotated slowly and generated a noise similar to a vacuum cleaner drawing in air. The cupola would rotate faster when the craft lifted into the air. The whistling sound would transform into a steady hum like a refrigerator. Directly below the cupola, at the back end, was a rudder that turned left and right, presumably to steer the craft once it was in the air. When the tour was over, the guide gestured him to the ladder. The hooded figure pointed to himself, to the ground, and to the sky. He made a sign telling Antonio to step back as the metal ladder retracted into the ship. The craft's lights became brighter, and the cupola quickened its rotation. The aerial object rose vertically into the air. The three legs that supported the craft on the ground were now back inside the metal hole. The bottom of the craft was a completely seamless object, and it continued rising up. The rudder turned to the right, and the craft shot off, heading south. Antonio stood there watching the craft depart as the sun stole a glance at the night's events. When he returned to the tractor, he found that the engine was still dead. He looked into the engine compartment and found one of the battery terminals was just simply disconnected, and when reconnected, 
fired up with no problem. The kitchen clock read 5.30 a.m. when he walked into the house. He had been on the ship for over four hours and was left feeling weak after the encounter. The last meal he could remember was at 9 o'clock the previous evening, and vomiting on the ship didn't help matters. Antonio slept most of the day, waking at 4.30 p.m., feeling better and a little hungry. The following nights, however, were sleepless ones for Antonio. The trauma of the UFO encounter was beginning to affect him deeply, and when he did manage to find a few moments of sleep, would dream about the events of that night, as if he were reliving them all over again. He would usually wake up when the hooded figures were taking him by the arm. Antonio was completely exhausted. One cup of coffee made him nauseous for an entire day, and on the second sleepless night, his eyes began to water and burn. He could still see from them, but the burning sensation remained for a number of days, and as a result, developed a sensitivity to light. On the third night, he was finally able to get a normal amount of sleep, but felt drowsy every day for the next month. It was a long and slow process before things returned to normal. On the eighth day following the abduction, while working in the fields, he developed a bruise on his forearm that broke the skin and bled. The next day, the bruise had developed into a small infected wound with pustules on the surrounding tissue. Even after it had healed completely, a purple-colored ring could still be seen on his skin. Olavo Fontes noted how unusual the lesion and Antonio's other symptoms were. It was his belief that the young farmer's symptoms were consistent with someone who had been exposed to radiation. What we find in the 13 pages of the Antonio V.S. Boas affidavit is an incredibly detailed abduction event that is consciously recalled. In many ways, this abduction is the analog predecessor to the accounts of Betty and Barney Hill, Terry Lovelace, and Whitley Strieber, due to a lack of high strangeness. There was no telepathic communication that Antonio experienced, nor an immobilizing wand used to zap his free will away. His free will was taken by brute force alone. There were no bright lights that beamed Antonio V.S. Boas on board the craft. Instead, he was carried on board by the beings up an inconvenient ladder. He was fully lucid during the entire experience, which is a rare event considering most abductions are experienced through a dreamlike state. Aside from being dragged on board, Antonio was free to move around when the beings were not interacting with him. Jao Martins, the man he entrusted his story to, didn't believe him. Due to a few inconsistencies and the amount of detail contained within the affidavit alone, even Olavo Fontes was skeptical of the claims of Antonio V.S. Boas, but would go on to present the case to the public. Here's an audio clip of Olavo Fontes presenting the case to members of an ICAP. He called the man. 
he was a 23 years old young man, intelligent, with no signs of psychological disturbance. Uh, he wasn't a crackpot, and he wasn't a mystic. And he told a very strange story. And we, we made a cross-examination of him, which lasted about seven hours. We two, myself and my friend. And this man made the most detailed description of the inside of the UFO that I have seen. And he said that he was in the tractor growing a field and an object came down egg-shaped and the motor, the engine of the tractor was solid, the lights dimmed out and went out and the object came down slowly and landed in four with four legs, two or four legs, I don't remember it was a triple door or four legs. And the door was open and he saw five people in a kind of suit with helmet helmets and they came down in his direction and he tried to run away and there was a fight had to fight and at the end he was grasped and taken by force. There is one other possible explanation that I don't put a lot of stock in but is worth mentioning. In the late 1970s, UFO researcher Rich Reynolds was approached by a man named Bosco Nedeljkovic. He was a former government employee with the Agency for International Development under the U.S. State Department. Nedeljkovic, who also had ties to the CIA, claimed that Antonio was the subject of a mind control experiment similar to those conducted under Project MKUltra. He claimed that Antonio was doused with LSD and forced on board a sophisticated type of helicopter developed for the CIA. It should be noted that many of the craft's features are consistent with a helicopter, including the spinning cupola on top of the craft and the humming sound it made. Researcher Nick Redfern expounded upon this story and noted how sex workers were employed by the CIA to dose men with LSD in cities like San Francisco and New York City. He believes that the alien woman was in fact a Vietnamese sex worker. In the end, We'll never know whether Antonio Villas-Boas was abducted by aliens or the CIA, but if we can take anything away from this story, it's that Antonio didn't let this event affect his life. Years after the abduction of October 1957, Antonio Villas-Boas would become a successful lawyer in the city of Formosa after receding from the public eye. He passed away in 1992. This episode was written, researched, and produced by me. Special thanks to my friend Fabi for providing research assistance and tracking down a few Brazilian flying saucer bulletins that became vital to the story. 
and to my good friend and fellow podcaster Brian Sprague of the Somewhere in the Skies podcast for lending his vocal talent to the episode. You can check out his great podcast at somewhereintheskies.com or wherever you find podcasts. If you want to connect with us and learn more about the podcast, including ways you can support the show, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com, where you can find links to our social media profiles, episodes, our Patreon page, and Public Shop, where our merch is regularly on sale. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and website was designed by the great Desdemona. And finally... Don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. Or in the skies of Brazil. In gray we trust.